Who's in charge? Who's in charge? (laughs) Ainsley was telling us the other day that Evangeline got up one morning and said, I am the boss. (laughs) And Ainsley said to her, you're not the boss. And she said, yes, I am. I'm the boss. So uh, Ainsley said to Evangeline, you better go and ask Daddy about that. So she goes in and asks her Daddy. She comes out, all crestfallen. Daddy says, I'm not the boss. <laughs> we might sometimes feel like that ourselves, hey? Well, we can move on to the next slide. Thank you. Now, there's a, a chart. A chart doesn't mean anything to you until I explain it. But in in preparing for our discussion point today, I I looked at some research on moral values. And, you know, we feel, I'm sure, that we are kind of moving into a period of moral darkness. And so I had a look to see what research exists around trends in morality. There's not a lot, there's a lot of opinion, a lot of opinion, and there is some research. And uh, so I located this research, and uh, what I discovered was that a really detailed and very interesting research project had been carried out using Google Books. Now, if you go into Google Books, they've just just about got every book under the sun listed. I'm not sure whether they're still, still selling Dr. Seuss. Amazon have pulled six Dr. Seuss books and so to have eBay. So if you've got certain Dr. Seuss books to sell, you won't be able to sell them through Amazon or eBay. I mean, I just think this is how stupid humanity has become, but that's a different issue. Um, it all started with the naughty books, of course. You won't find a naughty book now with Mr. Plod in it. <laughs> Remember Mr. Plod, the policeman? <laughs> well, they've, they've erased Mr. Plod and the fat con- uh, and, and from um, Thomas the Tank Engine, the fat controller's not there anymore. Pardon? Is that right, Mr. Sir Toppen? Yeah, yeah. It, it's just anyway. I. I, I there's something wrong with us now that we're so fragile that we can't place children's stories in their historical context. But anyway, that's something else I might preach on one of these days. Anyhow, what this chart does, it, it, it looks at a whole lot of words that reflect uh, moral positions. And so what they've done with the wonderful power of computers is to go all the way, all the way back to the beginning of the uh, 20th century, right back to the 1900s, early early on. See, this chart starts here at 1900, and it actually goes up to 2007. This paper was only published last year, uh, 2019, about two years ago. Uh, I'm not sure why it doesn't go further than 2007. I'm just guessing the data are not available. I know, yeah, but that's because of the scale. I'm just saying. That says 2005, right? The chart actually goes on. I'm an economist, I know these things. Mm. <laughs> I know how to read it, yeah, but you're talking to the expert. I know how to read a chart, right? I've got a PhD in economics. I know more than anyone else here about economics. Anything else, I don't know about, right? 
Human relations? I don't know. <laughs> All that. Pastoring? I know nothing. Anyway, that's not true. Anyhow, so what they do is they look for certain words that reflect moral positions. And they count them up and they basically compare the number of those words against the total number of words in all these publications and that gives them what they call a relative frequency. And the chart shows that as we go down through the 20th century, there's less and less reference to morality terms in the literature. We're talking about published books. And then after the early 1980s, it kicked up again. And it's interesting what the authors say there. They say that in part it may have been due to a resurgence of conservatism. That was a period of time when Ronald Reagan was President of the United States, Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister of the UK, but actually there were Labor governments in other countries like Australia and New Zealand, so there weren't conservative governments everywhere. The authors go on to, to analyse this upturn and although there was a, a massive increase in morality words, morality had changed. And there's a lot of commentary. It was about that time philosophies, ways of thinking changed and postmodernism began to get a hold in people's thinking. Now, in postmodernism, essentially, there is no such thing as absolute truth, although that can't possibly be true because that was an absolute statement I just made. If you understand that, right? Postmodernism is actually totally and utterly impossible, but postmodernists believe it is. And they'll tell you there's no such thing as absolute truth. Now, that if there's no such thing as absolute truth, that statement itself cannot possibly be true. If you you get the logic? Okay. Anyway, but, but in postmodernism, I can have a truth and Helen can have a truth and both are true even if they might be different. I know it sounds a bit cockeyed because it is, but this is the way many, many people think today. What's true for you is true. What's true for me is true. And what's true for me is really based on how I feel. What's true for you is based on how you feel. And so there's, there's been this big swing away from what you might call conservative or traditional morality based on absolute truth to relative truth, which is based on the ideas associated with postmodern thinking. Now, if you have a look at where we are today, we're probably exploded way out because there is now so much discussion about moral issues because there are some, like people who are committed to regular church going, who still believe that there's absolute truth and we find absolute truth in the Bible. Most of the world is not with us. If we can go to the next slide tomorrow. Oh, can we just go to the next one and I'll come back to this one? Pardon? I'm testing you today. Well, as long as you don't moan, right? 
As long as you don't moan about it, you'll have a testimony. We sang that song. I've been wanting to use that joke. You just gave me the opportunity. Uh, look at this. Only 19% of Australians agree that belief in God is necessary in order to be moral and have good values. Of the countries that were included in this study by the Pew Research Centre, there's only three that have a lower percentage than Australia, the lowest being Sweden at 9%. So the, the um, stronger the green colour, the more people believe that you need to believe in God in order to have a good moral basis for your life. That's pretty extraordinary, isn't it? Now, this was published in 2020. This is very recent research. Now, if we can just go back one slide. Increasing harassment for people of faith. Now, again, this is Pew Research Centre, and it's quite recent. Their data start in 2007, and the most recent data, 2018. There are other religions. I've just taken a few lines out of their table so we can actually read it on the screen. Two types of harassment, government by government, when the government passes laws that make it difficult or impossible for us to express our Christian belief. And social harassment, which is when the world basically gangs up on us, all right? If we have a look here, Christians, 79 countries in 2007, 124 in 2018 were harassing Christians. Social harassment, 74 to 104, somewhat similar with Muslims. You can see there's been a bigger percentage increase in, in relation to Jews, but not as many countries. And in all, in 2007, 118 countries, now 175. I think there's about 220 countries in the world now. So most of the world is making life difficult for Christians. Okay? It's making life difficult for people of faith in general. Because Muslims are getting it, Jews are getting it, Hindus are getting it, uh, Buddhists are getting it. Basically, people of faith all over the world are finding it more and more difficult to practice what they believe because governments are making it more difficult and there are pressures in society that run against us as well. So one could be forgiven for thinking that the world is getting darker and many Christians believe that as the world gets darker, the light of the Lord will increase. And one thing we know for sure that happens is that the more governments and society in general make it difficult for Christians to practice their faith, the more the church grows. That happens all over the world. I shared briefly last week about the beginnings of the Welsh revival. One man thought that Christianity had failed and he went and prayed about it and he heard from God and he obeyed. And eventually there was a revival that went through many countries of the world, including Australia, down in Melbourne. And it actually became the seedbed of what we now call Pentecostalism, which is one of the fastest growing expressions of Christianity in the world today, particularly in uh, Africa and in South America. So things 
are not looking too good. There's been a massive shift away from biblically-based morality. There are governments almost everywhere, it would seem, passing legislation that would make it more and more difficult for us to practice our faith. And there are all kinds of pressures coming from society. There are meetings next week in Victoria of pastors trying to work out how they're going to respond to the recent Victorian legislation over um, gender conversion therapy, which, which could land a pastor in jail for up to 10 years. If they pray for somebody, if, if someone comes to them and says, look, I'm confused about my gender, the pastor might pray for them. Five years down the track, legal action could be launched because somebody's decided that that affected them in a negative way and a pastor could be fined or sent to jail. So pastors in Victoria are working through that. We've got a, a, um, a Zoom conference with the Ignite Life Churches next Thursday as we work through these issues. The, there is similar legislation in Queensland, but it actually targets the medical profession. And the advice is it probably doesn't affect churches except to the extent that we purport to counsel people. So there's a possibility. But these things are happening literally in our own backyard. And, uh, you know, it raises a question for a lot of people. Who's in control? And I want to address that issue. Is God sovereign or what? And this is quite a, a debate that goes on within the Christian church. And there are various schools of thought, if you like, about the degree to which God imposes his sovereign will on people. You'll find all sorts of memes. Don't get your theology from memes, by the way. <laughs> get it from the Bible. Always read the Bible. Um, don't get your theology from uh, YouTube or Facebook or any of those places because I can guarantee you'll go right off. But here's a, here's a meme that you sometimes see on Facebook. God is in control. The plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. You can read that and say, well, guess what? Everything that happens is controlled by God. And not only that, he's preordained it. Now, there is a school of thought. It's a, a strong kind of Calvinism. It's sometimes called determinism to sort of get away from using an individual's name. A very strong version of determinism actually says what's in that meme is actually correct. That long before you or I were even born, God decided a lot of things about us. One of the things he decided was whether or not we were going to be saved. So God predetermined before we're even born whether or not we were going to become Christians. And 
for those who God determines are going to become Christians, there is irresistible grace. In other words, there's nothing we can do to prevent ourselves from responding. Right? Now, on the other hand, if you happen to be one of those God decided wasn't going to be saved, there's a kind of general grace, a general blessing over the whole of humanity, but you're going to hell anyway. And guess what? You won't have it in you to respond to that grace by which some are saved. That's a, a strong Calvinist position. The strongest of the positions actually go a lot further than that and say everything that happens to us was predetermined by God. Good things and bad things. Everything that happens to us. If I have a road accident going home today and my wife is killed, guess what? That was part of what God dreamt up up for us long before we are even born. I hate, I do actually hate passionately the statement God is in control because I think it misrepresents who God is. Now, there are lots and lots of people who follow the reformed tradition of thinking in Christianity who would say that the only thing that is deterministic is whether or not we become Christians. I've heard Greg Kokel, who's a really wonderful apologist uh, in America. I've met him. He, we, we actually, a group of us brought him out to Australia um, quite a while ago now. But he, he is of the view that the only thing which is fully determined is our salvation. Right? So we have no choice in the matter. God's figured out who he wants and who he doesn't want a long time before we're even formed in our mother's womb and there's nothing that anybody can do about it, including ourselves. Right? That's generally the position of Reformed churches. Churches that go by the name Reformed. Uh, the Lutheran church generally holds to that view as well. Uh, a lot of Baptists hold to that view, not all. So it, it, it's a reasonably common understanding. But what about free will? Now, my own position is we have free will. That a God of love could not have created us as puppets on a string. You see, love has to take the risk that what love creates will not return Love. Do you understand what I'm saying? Love has to take a risk. God took a big risk when he put Adam and Eve in the garden and said, tend and keep it. You can eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden. That's what he said. Every tree in the garden. And then he said, but you cannot eat the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. Now, 
He didn't have to say that. See, if he was a God who, as it were, was totally in control, he would have created Adam and Eve without the capacity to disobey him. In other words, without the capacity to make a choice, without free will. Adam and Eve made a choice. Sure, that choice was influenced by a whisper. Did God say? Adam and Eve chose to respond in one way. Jesus chose to respond in another way. Because remember, Jesus was tempted the same way. But Jesus' response was, it is written. And Jesus did not fall for the deceit. But Adam and Eve did. So there's contrast, choice. Adam and Eve had a choice. Jesus had a choice. Now, if God created us with free will, then it is entirely our choice as to how we respond to the wooing of the Holy Spirit. So God wants us all right. His goodness runs after us all right, but we have to choose. We have to make the choice. Now, I'm not going to spend any time going through Genesis chapters 1, 2 and 3. I've done that often enough and Helen can probably recite what I say. But I I do believe that these chapters establish beyond the shadow of doubt that God delegated royal authority to humanity. In fact, what God did was to delegate a level of control to humanity. When he said, have dominion, he was actually delegating us to take care of everything that he had created to tend and to care for everything that he had put in the garden a royal delegation and the ancients who were reading the scriptures or they wouldn't have read them in all likelihood they would have heard them they would have understood because in their cultures kings used to delegate royal authority they delegate royal authority to Princes. So they would, for example, delegate royal authority that they would rule over a particular area. And that's what happened back in Genesis chapter 1 when God said, Have dominion, fill the earth, multiply. So God took a big risk. And what we're seeing in some of this data I've shown up earlier is the result of the risk. A lot of people, perhaps 80% in Australia, reject him. Don't need to know God to live a moral life. They've made a choice. So I thought it would be 
So the whole of humanity was delegated this responsibility. Now listen, there is a real sense in which God is in control. He is in control of the overarching of human history, right? Because the Bible is the story of human history, some of it not yet played out. But God delegates that authority back in Genesis. But guess what happens when Jesus returns? He takes it back. What doesn't the Bible teach us that when, when Jesus comes a second time, he, he, he will rule and reign with righteous and justice. Yes, righteousness and justice. That's the sense in which he's in control. In his control, he gave delegated authority to humanity. But the Bible also teaches us after we've messed this all up, as it appears we're doing collectively, he's going to return and he'll take control of it. Now, the point of the cross is we can take that control now. Right? We've been redeemed all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Now, there are certain things we can't do. Maybe we can't control what's happening in terms of legislation in the parliament. Right? There's, it looks as if legislation on euthanasia is just going to be steamrolled through the parliament. We had abortion up to birth where you can select the sex of your child and everything. That just got bulldozed through the Queensland parliament not long before the last election. We, we might not be able to stop those kinds of things. But we can still have victory right now through Christ. It's just that we're in this kind of interim period that the Bible calls the last days when the kingdom of God is kind of unfolding. More and more people are becoming aware of the gospel as uh, missionaries end up being all over the earth. And, and, and through the wonderful technologies we have with, with um Modern communications, signals can be bent. You know, in, in the poorest countries in the world, people have mobile phones, right? They might not have roads, they might not have decent roads, but they actually have internet connectivity. So the gospel can be preached to people even though they can't be physically reached by road. And we're getting very close to the point where the whole planet is saturated by the gospel. So we were delegated authority, but I want to talk now about the principle of ambassadorship because I think in the New Testament, this kind of delegation has been updated a little bit. I want to read to you from 2 Corinthians 5. Verses 13 to 21, I'm using the New Living Translation. And, and, and the primary focus here is on getting the message of the gospel out. But it's not just about salvation of individuals. It's about transformation of communities, transformation of nations. If it seems we are crazy, it is to bring glory to God. And if we are in our right minds, it is for your benefit. Either way... Christ's love controls us. That's really important. As Christians, as people who are born again, we are controlled by Christ's love. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. 
the old postmodern thinking, for example, and we've been awakened to the glorious, wonderful truth of his word. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. That is radical. That is radical. The idea that we no longer live for ourselves is radical. It is counter-cultural in our world today. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, how differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. We're different. We're thrown off the selfishness. We've thrown off the idea that your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. We've thrown off the idea that you don't really matter and I'm going to get all I can and I'm going to put it in a can and I'm going to sit on my can. No longer because the old life is gone. A new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. And it's not just about salvation. It's about bringing the fullness of the freedom that there is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So there's been a something of a shift, something of a change between that delegation back there in Genesis and what we're expected to be like as New Testament Christians. Probably the, the picture in our minds back there in the Garden of Eden is a kind of rural atmosphere. But, but we're talking about ambassadors now. And, and that doesn't that have a... When you think about ambassadors, you think about offices and, and cities and, and governments, don't you? Yeah. And that's the kind of world we're living in now. So yes, the delegation is still there. There's still a delegation. But for us as Christians, we're ambassadors. Everywhere we go, we should faithfully carry the message of Jesus Christ and represent him. When people see us, they should be looking at Jesus. When people observe what we do, they should be seeing Jesus. And if you were with me two years ago, before we moved out of Wara Grove, back in about January of 2018, we talked, we had a series where we talked about salvation. 
And the very last one I did, I said, salvation is not just for us as individuals. It's for the whole community. When people are saved, communities should change. Whole nations should be transformed because ambassadors for Christ are in each of the nations. So is God in control? Yes, to the extent that he has foreseen the whole of human history. He made a choice to delegate authority, dominion to humanity at the beginning of human history. Being a God of love, he created us as beings with free will. It's our choice to respond to the call of the Holy Spirit on our own hearts and become Christians, followers of Jesus Christ. And then it's our choice to live a life which is consistent with the life of Jesus. Our choice now to become ambassadors of Christ. Because salvation is not just for us, for those around us. It's for a, a culture that is in need of being reshaped radically, radically reshaped. So that those in power come back to the Bible as the basis for their thinking. Will they? Will we know? Because we, we've done that series on Revelation. We know that, that you know, even right at the end of this, the, the seventh year of the tribulation, when fire, literal fireballs are raining down from heaven, there will still be people who shake their fists at God and say, No! Despite all the signs that people will see in that whole seven year period of tribulation and then particularly in the, the latter half of it, what's called the great tribulation, the Bible tells us there are still people who are going to say no to God. Why? They've got free will. They've got free will. God will take back control because that's the whole purpose of the second coming of Jesus. But right now, in these last days, yes, humanity has delegation, but more importantly, we are Christ's ambassadors. And the words that we speak and the things that we do are intended to represent Christ on earth. No one's laughing now. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's okay. It's okay if governments are against us. It's okay if society is against us. That happens to ambassadors. It doesn't change our status one little bit. We're still ambassadors for Jesus Christ. So yes, God is sovereign, but not where he has given us delegation 
And as ambassadors, we can choose to faithfully represent Christ or we can choose not to. It's our choice. But ultimately, ultimately, it's all handed back to Jesus. And that 